0: Mary, in the Gospel of John, goes early in the dark to the tomb. She's in this place of death where several bodies can be stacked, and she sees the tomb door open and she doesn't go in. She immediately thinks grave robbers have come, thieves have taken his body away. So she runs back to get her colleagues. She runs for Simon Peter and another unnamed faithful follower called the other disciple. That is scene one. On day three, the Bible says the first day of the week, the third day after the resurrection, that's scene one. She brings Simon Peter and the other disciple, also called the one Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. And they come to the tomb and see where the door is rolled back. Now, these two have a rivalry. You know, if you've spent time in the Gospel of John, just always trying to outdo the other. Watch for that as we read this morning, would you? And for how human these disciples really are. John chapter 20 will begin with verse 3 this morning. So Peter, the Bible says, and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Ha 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 ha, see? Keep your eye on that theme. The other disciple reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went in the tomb He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' body, around his head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, the one who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and he believed. Now the author puts a parenthesis and is going to explain They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is not their first time pretending to be gracious. You go first. No, I insist you go first. I got here, but you go in first. It's not their first time at that. It's not their first argument. Peter reaches the tomb And uh, as they enter, Simon Peter wins that round. He goes all the way inside the tomb. There are the cloths, the grave cloths and the linen. He sees they're folded up. He notices someone took the time to fold them. If Mary had taken the time to enter the tomb, that would have calmed her. What kind of a grave robber folds clothes? It's like doing laundry. If you're going to rob a body, you wouldn't do that, would you? Simon Peter sees folded clothes. And then the other disciple entered, the faithful one, and, and he looks and he sees. And the text says, he both men see, and this one believed something. The Bible doesn't say what he believed. He looked and he believed something, and we don't know what. In that moment, did something come clear in his head? The doctrine of salvation, the, the humanity and divinity of Jesus, the trinity, three co-eternal persons in one? Probably not. He saw and believed, but what? The author of this gospel doesn't help. He sort of betrays both of them by saying they really, neither one of them, know anything. But saw enough to believe. Their rivalry, by the way, is also intellectual, we see here. Saw enough to believe, satisfied, and could go home. According to the text, they didn't stop to say hello or anything to Mary. Just tell her what they saw. They just left. The text says they went to their home. It was enough. Now the story belongs to Mary. This is really now between Mary and Jesus. Had the men stayed? We studied the passage on Tuesday morning and staff worshiped together. This was our first time for Pastor Dustin to sit with us around the table. Dustin, Ken, Isaac, Dan, Pastor Carl, myself. We're studying this passage, and we get to this point in the story, and the new guy says, what with these men? They go home now? Now they leave, and Mary stays. Is, it, is this like a gender thing, like the women just get it? Ah, I, That's a question. I answered so quickly, I have witnesses here, yes. And then Brother Ken said, Well, actually, we try not to say it that way around here. We try not to let her think that, Dustin. He's going to be great, isn't he? It's a good question he asks. Why are they so impatient? If they just stay a little longer, they could have had a conversation with Jesus. Why are they in such a hurry? So now it's Mary's story. The text tells us Mary is weeping. And this is beginning uh, in verse 11. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels, two messengers in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they've put him. This is the second time, by the way. She brings up the idea of grave robbers who have someone's taken this body away verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? In verse 15, those words of Jesus. Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Two questions of tandem significance. Why is your grief so central, weeping one? And what is it you seek? What's your passion? What, what are you craving? What are you chasing after, the word means. And it's a question that's come up often in the Gospel of John. Several times it's asked, what are you seeking? Last time it was asked, came out of Jesus' mouth. He asked to the police officers and those soldiers who came to arrest him. What are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Why do you grieve? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary, he used her name. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means my teacher. Jesus said, do do not hold on to me for I've not yet returned to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them. I am returning to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went with the news. I have seen the Lord. She told them she had seen these things. I heard a wise preacher last week say, What have I done so extraordinary that I get to be the omniscient reader? of such a text. What have we done so special that we have this most intimate conversation? We get to read one of the most Important conversations in Christian history between Jesus and Mary, precious to one another. Jesus, she recognizes Mary Mary, he says, she recognizes her name. It's my teacher. They haven't taken his body. The grave robbers didn't get him. He is still here. Gee, it's my Jesus. And he responds back, Don't touch me. If things are different now. There is a shift and He doesn't have time to explain it all. I'm not not sure we understand it all. But it's as if he's saying, I'm in another mode of ministry now, Mary. Don't keep clinging on to me. We won't be doing it the way we have been doing it. If you think of Lazarus, who was alive and dead and, and back alive again, like a resuscitation, this is not what's happening, Mary. It's more. Don't cling. Just go back and tell. The Bible says that she does that. She returns Go and tell them I'm going to my God, the God we share in common, my Father, the Father we share in common. We're in this together, Mary, and she goes. Scene three on the third day. If we were to keep reading scene four and five and six, we would meet more disciples with new and different experiences. In fact, that's what seems to happen in the Gospel of John. It is unlike the others in that from Friday night through Sunday and on, it reads like one continuous story. Jesus keeps appearing to people. He keeps appearing and appearing and appearing. And there's another conversation and another. The Bible says he he went to the place where the disciples are used to gathering in their room and he breathed the Spirit on them. And then he moved on and kept appearing and kept appearing. And John ends his book by saying... You know, I could go on and tell you all these stories, but the world, the big world we live in, couldn't hold all the volumes I could write. Gives you the idea. The resurrection keeps happening. It keeps happening. It is a third-day perspective we're reading about. The third-day perspective tells us that human experiences vary And a life of faith rooted in God, while it's mysterious because it's rooted in God, it's also mysterious because humans are complex and our experiences are different. There is no one right or correct experience as you read through these stories. In fact, we're about to meet one, should we continue, one called Thomas, who seems to grow in his faith specifically because he refuses to believe what people are telling him. And he seems to grow. Resurrection happens for each of these disciples when God shows up and they get it. You don't have to have a merry experience. You just have to have your experience. That's what a third day perspective teaches us. Wherever you are in this morning, this morning, whoever you are, wherever you are in your experience with God, it matters. God will show up to you. And when you get it, that's resurrection. A third-day perspective also teaches us that what happened behind that tomb door was between God and Jesus. No one saw that. I wasn't there. You weren't there. The door was closed Whatever happened, no one witnessed, and for sure, when Mary and all the others last saw Jesus, they knew there had been a trial, there had been prosecuting attorneys, there were denials all over the place, Jesus really was crucified and placed behind the door. Last they saw Jesus, Pilate had the power, and the empire said the last word, and then they come, and the tomb is opened. We don't know what happened behind that tomb door. It was between God and Jesus. One author, Barbara Taylor Brown, says, Christians have spent an awful lot of time trying to prove what happened behind that closed door. As if we know, and if we could just persuade the world, we'll show you the text. We'll hear the prophecies. Obviously, they came and the tomb is empty. See, it happened this way persuasion We can cram it down their throat. Persuasion. We've just come back, the family, from a one-week vacation. We were sent on this vacation. It was a gift. Those are the best kind to take, by the way. A, a vacation you don't pay for. So we've had a week in Hawaii. We decided, not bad. I know. It was generous. It was a very generous gift we decided to drive the girls to the north shore of Oahu. Everyone knows that's where you go to either surf or get pounded by the waves or to eat shave ice. The best shave ice is in the northern side, right? We drive to the northern side. The last time Kirby and I were there, years ago, we had one of these things. You know, we call the snow cone, but the Polynesian way, the shave ice way, is to take one azuki bean, which is a fancy Japanese name for a red bean, and put it in the bottom of the cup, and then put a scoop of vanilla ice cream, and then put the ice, and then put all the sugary syrups on the top. Shave ice. Have you had this? Not here. Over there? Okay, so here we drive up there, and we go into the store where we've eaten before. And Kirby notices on the menu these... The way the shave ice is described, and he orders for the girls, he realizes there is a more authentic way to enjoy shave ice than what we had. You take a scoop of these cooked beans with a little sugar in them. So it's like chili but not hot. Mmm. Mmm. Put the ice cream in the bottom, put the chili beans on. (laughs) Put the ice on, put all the syrups on, and just chow down. Look at the beans. You want to dig into your ice cream and get that? He comes out of the store and hands these delights, you know, to the girls, and they, they think it's fabulous until they dig in and realize there's beans in our ice cream. <laughs> he says, Yes, but we're having an authentic Polynesian experience. We're going to eat it the way the Hawaiians do. Isn't it good? No, Dad, it's not good. <laughs> We're leaving the store. Everyone's back in the car. We're driving down the street. One of them in the back seat said, I have this figured out. Those Polynesians don't eat this either. I'll bet you they don't eat this either. They just put it on the menu to see how many dumb tourists will order it. (laughs) They say, let's try this and see if we can get anybody to eat it. And then come people like us, green from the mainland. Go, oh, very interesting Polynesian treat, mmm. And they're probably behind the counter. One of the girls said, giving high fives, going, "Yeah, we got another one." <laughs> Persuasion, right? So Christians argue and cram the Bible down the throats of those in the world who don't believe this faith story and say, but we can show you the empty tomb and we can show you the texts. And Barbara Taylor Brown is right. We've spent so much energy arguing about something we can't really prove. You know you can argue this point, she says, and never ever talk to the gardener. We can argue about what happened that Sunday morning and never turn to Jesus and have a real conversation. She says, Easter didn't begin when the tomb was empty. Easter began when Mary recognized her name and said, rabboni talk to the gardener. A third-day perspective tells us that. What behind, happened behind the tomb door between God and Jesus. But I want to talk to the gardener. I want you to hear from the gardener. Not because, not because uh, some Christian the- theological construct somewhere says they can prove it, but because you've actually sat with a master. I've actually been in that master's presence. The power of the story is when we talk to the gardener. Third-day perspective also means that the resurrection is just waiting for a witness. It cries out, did anyone notice what happened here? You see, if God has a salvation problem... If we have a sin problem and God needs to solve this, you know God can solve this anyway. God chooses in the blink of an eye with the quickness of a speech act like creation. He created once. He could speak and do it again. He gave life once. He could speak speak and it would be over again. But for some reason, there is a human Jesus who enters our world, who decides to live and to love and to teach and to experience even torture and pain and cruelty and go all the way to a cross. Some people say all the way to hell. God could have told the story with a lot less overhead. But he brings Jesus into the world, this most human component of the salvation story. He brings Jesus, who experienced all that pain and can look at you and I, wherever we are, wherever we've been, and say, Yes, I do know what your pain is like. I've been there. God could tell the story any way he wants. He tells it this way for us. It's for our eyes. It's for your eyes. The resurrection cries out to be witnessed, to be seen, and then to be spoken about. Did you see what happened there? If we were to continue on in the Gospel of John, if we were to, had time to go back even, and if you do this week, choose to read backwards a little ways, you'll see what grounds Mary and the other disciples, what they have just witnessed, why this is so powerful for them, the way John tells the story. It is only in the Gospel of John Jesus carries his own cross. Only in the Gospel of John Jesus says, It is finished. Only in the Gospel of John, Jesus does not cry out to God. Only in the Gospel of John, Jesus decides when to give up his spirit. As if to say, oh evil, you are not in control of this world. You've just met God. That is what's underneath the resurrection experience. You've just met God. And God is in the business of liberating all creation and liberating planet Earth. And this is the way He's chosen to do it. And it cries out to be noticed. Resurrection, once a witness. Did anyone see what happened? A third day perspective, it's a witness. It's why Mary weeps and she only weeps. There's only crying in the Gospel of John, by the way. There's only dark mourning in the Gospel of John. It's why Mary weeps and then she runs. She's giving witness. It's why Simon Peter and the other ones say, well, we learned something, but we don't know what. They're giving witness. It's why Thomas even wrestles and says, I don't know if it's that way. Maybe it's that way. He's giving witness. And you go on and on. They're all giving witness and voice that the resurrection is happening inside of them. It is what happened when the choir led this morning and when Marianne created these banners and the flowers came up and the food was prepared and the painters began expressing themselves on the canvas. And when the children read this morning, they're giving witness. They're saying, this is the resurrection in me and it will come out of us in various ways. This morning, we show you just a small clip, first service, when When you weren't here, we experienced five precious commitments. People who are responding to the resurrection story. You pull the clip up, gentlemen, while I'm talking. Five youth from the academy, some of them who've uh, just decided more recently, some of them who've decided a long time ago. When they stand in the baptismal waters, they give witness. The resurrection is happening in me. and on another one, and on to another one, and five decisions later, and the church says, Amen. Amen. They're witnesses to the resurrection this morning. Oh, be careful, because witnesses to the resurrection will come in all shapes and sizes they'll come in all sorts of expressions and by the way those of you who've been following along for the last 6 weeks and we've been where we've been talking about spiritual practices how it is we pattern our lives to make ourselves available to God so Christ will be formed in us what are the practices we choose giving witness giving testimony singing our song that is a spiritual practice when it happens be prepared For it to look unique and different no matter where it comes from. Sitting in Barnes and Noble on Thursday night this week. And I was reflecting for the last time on John 20. Had one of the girls with me. She was studying, doing her homework. Calculus, which is my sign that evil is alive and well. (laughs) We're in the middle of the bookstore in Redlands, surrounded by people. I look around and I see, I, I, I can't help doing this, I see an old, a older couple, retired couple, looking at road maps. I think they're going to take a trip. There's an uh, empty nester couple at another table. They have a stack of journals, magazines they've been reading. They decide to call it a night, go home early, watch a TV show. There's a guy by himself, middle-aged single guy with a laptop open who's been there longer than any of us. There are more college students than you can count betrayed by their textbooks and their iPod cords. There is a little two-year-old who's just got the walking down pat, and she knows she's awful cute already, dancing around in the middle where everyone can watch her. All around, life is just ordinary life going on. Sitting there reflecting on John 20, watching my daughter labor over calculus, I hear a soundtrack in the background like this. an angel is singing a little bit eerie but so so I couldn't even think of the words and I'm looking around where is the music coming from and and I uh, look to the right and I see all these magazines lined up sports illustrated golf Di- digest cycle muscle fitness you know you think I'm in the wrong section of the store here all combat arms, combat airplanes. I, I see all the things that people are reading and consuming and watching all these ordinary people go on. And here comes her voice. It just persists, this little Celtic melody. put that music on. I go to the counter. Did you put that music on? No. Go back to the back of the store. I go to the back in the section where you buy all the CDs and DVDs and I see two young 20-somethings. Their bodies are so creatively covered with art (laughs) and huge black plugs in their ear. Lots of self-expression going on. And, nah. Who put the music on, guys? Well, one of these creatively adorned young men said, That that was me. How do you decide what music to play? Well, when my shift starts, I go pick my five, and these are the five that will be on for the evening. I always, he said, I always put her CD on. Show me where it's at. He takes me. I look. I said, "What What do you like about this CD? He points to this song, Whispering Hope. Whispering Hope. My grandfather was a musician. They're Irish. I love this song. Soft as the voice of an angel. Don't you? Isn't it comforting? He says to me. Isn't it comforting? Whispering hope. Oh, how welcome thy voice. Make my heart in its sorrow rejoice. It's what Jesus did for Mary in that tomb. I look around the room and I wonder, all these ordinary people everywhere in this room are very human, tragic experiences. Somebody's been diagnosed. Somebody's lost a job. Somebody's failing a class. Somebody has a broken relationship. Many people are happy, but but seeking and searching after something, cravings and passions. And I wonder, do do you hear soft as the voice of an angel? Someone is whispering hope around you. That is the resurrection. That is a third-day perspective. It cries out for a witness. However it comes out of you, may it come out. Amen.